If you're able to stay standing, please do so. Uh, we are reading from the Holy Scripture, Mark 14, 22-25. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them, and said, Take this, is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This is the word of God. You may be seated. All right. Well, I am very excited. We mentioned last week that he was coming, but Josh White is here. Give him a round of applause. I know uh, a lot of you know and love Josh. Um, A couple of you, I think led to faith by Josh. Um, But if you don't know Josh, and I know there's some of you that don't, uh, Josh is the founding and lead pastor at the original Door of Hope, and now Door of Hope Southeast. Uh, And he's been someone who's blown in a bunch of incredible, this is a sentence, this is quickly not making sense, an incredible amount of wind into the sails of this church plant. And going back to Uh, The early years, I think around 2013, when my family started attending Door of Hope, uh, Josh has had a consistent vision to see numerous Door of Hope communities, smaller, more neighborhood, more communally oriented communities uh, that are lifting high the name of Jesus pop up around the city. Um, And that vision and that tenacious pursuit of that is one of the things that gave us the courage and many of you in this room the courage to step out and say, we're going to try it. We're going to do it. And... uh, So I'm forever grateful for that, Josh, and thanks for your encouragement, your leadership, and uh, your brotherhood, man. We're excited to have you here. Thank you. Thank you. I'll just move this out of the way. All right. Hey, everyone. So good to see all of you. Uh, Yeah, you know, this is the first time I've preached at Northeast since since it's been planted, so uh, it's really exciting to be here. Um, It's been a crazy, obviously, few years. Northeast is planted and COVID strikes like a week later, I think. Uh, and uh, it wasn't easy for anyone. Um, I, uh, my own journey has been uh, pretty, pretty crazy over the last few years. I lost my father. Uh, I finished my book. I was on a six-month sabbatical, um, forced sabbatical, because uh, I am a more is more personality. And I remember even when we were re- renovating this building, uh, I was the one who painted the exterior, and it, I don't think I did a very good job because it really needs a new paint job. Uh, but uh, <laughs> but I, I remember ending this project with shingles. It was great. Remember that Easter? So many people got saved because I preached with such, uh, so much um, zeal because I was in so much pain that people were scared into heaven that day. Uh, <laughs> so, um, but you know, it was, Fascinating. Last year, I was so burnt out, and and so um, I kind of just hit this place where I'm like, I don't think I should be a lead pastor. It's really hard when you pastor a church. You know, Darcy and I had this vision to start Door of Hope. You know, clear back in when I took the job uh, that moved us back to Portland in 2007, we came back with the goal to plant a church on the east side, which is where where Darcy lived when we met, um, and it's where we fell in love, 
Uh, and there was just like a desire. God kind of birthed the desire in us because we, she moved to Seattle. We were in Seattle for years, then moved to Spokane. Then I toured for a year, then moved to California for two and a half years before coming back to Portland. But Portland was always the place that we wanted to, to be at. And my kids were raised here. That the, the vision for, for Door of Hope um, came out of actually a dream that I had. And it was, a, it was actually a midday. Uh, I'm the master of 15-minute naps. And I was, I was napping. Uh, and I had this vision of, uh, of um, a massive crowd on Hawthorne that, that went as far as the eye could see. And I was, I was on the front, basically the front lawn of Western Seminary with a group of pastors. And we were getting ready to present the gospel and we were completely overwhelmed because we had no idea that this many people were going to come. And, uh, and we all realized that, yeah, it's because this has nothing to do with us. God is doing something. And we didn't, we were all actually uncomfortable because um, we didn't know what to do with it. And just as uh, we were beginning to uh, try to, to worship and people were hungry, it was like they were, it was like Nehemiah, you know, where the, when the revival kind of, the first kind of prototype of revivals in Nehemiah, when they, the people actually demand after praying and fasting, um, uh, they demand for the priest to open up the word and, and speak it to them. It's crazy when the people are saying, like, feed us. Like, we're one of, and Ezra opens up the word and then the priests go through and help them understand it. Uh, and there's this radical worship and then they're, they're told to go home and eat. Um, and to quit mourning. But this, this kind of spiritual awakening, I, I, I agree with Leonard Ravenhill when he asked, would we know what to do with a revival if it came? And I, I don't think we would. Um, but I, I'll just say this, that that, that vision actually inspired me to t take the step of faith and step out and resign from the, the job that I had. I was working for John Mark Comer and Phil Comer, um, at, which was once Solid Rock and then became a Jesus Church and then became Westside. Um, but I, I remember like how scary it was. We didn't have any support and uh, we, we didn't know if it was going to fly. But at the same time, we just had this calm, uh, both my wife and I. And I'm like, if it doesn't work, I'll, I'll paint houses. It's not that big of a deal. Um, and so we, we, it, just, it, just, it just took off. And in some ways, some of that dream kind of came true. Um, I look out and I do, I see many faces that were there in the early days. And um, that was kind of the biggest loss for me with uh, Northeast is that it seemed like everyone that was there in the early days went with Cameron because they're like, Josh, we've heard everything you have to say. So we're like, it's like, we love you, but you know, it's just like kind of, it's like being with your grandpa that just tells the same stories over and over again. <laughs> um, but somewhere along the line, you know, probably around 2015, it was not long after we got in this building, I kind of began to forget the vision. Um, and, and, and then I began to kind of doubt the calling. And then I kind of found myself, by the time I was forced into a sabbatical last year, I, I realized that I was, I was a lot like Jonah. Um, that I was constantly trying to escape what God called me to. Um, I actually resigned as lead pastor last year um, and was hired back part-time to be just the teaching, founding and teaching pastor. And my goal was to actually peace out um, after my book came out, which actually comes out in, in a month. And I'm not peacing out. This is why I'm telling you this story. It's a confession. Uh, and uh, um, I got back from the sabbatical and uh, I started to push into the congregation again. 
And I realized that some of it was like a vanity thing. It's like Door of Hope was so explosive in the early days. Like most churches in the United States and the Western world, COVID cut churches in half. Um, and although I would always say that numbers are not the primary um, uh, means by which we gauge the health of a community, it's still not easy to see a church emptied um, and to see people that we love walk away. And it's like the heartbreak of that and how it just began to, I started taking it like, it's all my fault. And I'm sure I contributed to people walking away because the church is built upon the shoulders of mixed people, people that always have mixture at play. Even when we're functioning in the power of the Holy Spirit, sin is always right there. And those all sin, past, present, and future, has been forgiven. Um, it doesn't mean that it can't still wreak havoc in our lives. And this is why we should never defend our faith by church history. Because church history is a great defense of sin. <laughs> and, um, and sin is a great reminder of why we need Jesus and why we need the gospel. But those doubts plagued me so hard that I, I, I just I started to get anxious thinking about leading and, and always felt fraudulent and, uh, and, and then even embittered that the Lord was keeping me in this place because I felt like I was held to like an unfair standard. Uh, and, and then something happened in December, this December, I led Psalm 119 and I remember I'm, it was the first kind of step toward clarity of mind. Uh, it wasn't just the six months of rest, but it was actually a pretty significant decision um, which was accepting the fact that I had a problem relationship with alcohol. Um, not drunkenness, just a consistent turning to it as a means of escape from the pressures of ministry. Um, and I don't, I'm not a teetotaler. I don't think that alcohol is a sin, I, or to drink is a sin. But I have watched many Christians uh, cross the line with that. And because it's so universally accepted now in the church, no one says anything. I mean, I remember being with a series a group of key pastors, pastor, global pastors, and seeing many of them drunk in London and just being like, we don't even talk about this anymore. Um, and it's all in our excuses, ministry's hard, and therefore I have earned this right um, to lean into the Holy Spirit and a few shots of whiskey. <laughs> um, uh, but sobriety really, sobriety is a good way to open up the eyes. Uh, sobriety led to more prayer and I realized like man I'm trying to escape Jesus and by the way I'm sharing all this because it speaks in my mind deeply to what communion is all about uh, and that sobriety led to God really beginning to speak to me and, and my daughter Hattie was the one that said dad I think you should you should stop drinking and here's the thing for me I'm on medication so my interaction with alcohol is much more intense so it wasn't I wasn't necessarily over drinking but it impacted me and so everybody's different and and for some people it's not alcohol some people it's, it's food some people it's social media some people it's their jobs some people it's their kids whatever it is that we utilize to escape God <laughs> or to escape our call to be conduits of grace um, we have to we have to take note of we need to we always need to ask the question of where is the central heart affection um, because all these other things are good things. Food, drink, children, careers, the beauty of the world around us. These are all gifts from God, but how quickly the gifts actually replace the giver. And it's, it's a problem. The most dangerous, honestly, and the reason I ended up in burnout is because I replaced 
ministry. I, I replaced Jesus with ministry for Jesus. I lost Jesus in my ministry on his behalf. And, and this is why I think Luther was so wise to put far more emphasis on legalism than, than a, a libertine spirit, because a libertine spirit's obvious to everyone. The, the person that seems to cross every T and dot every, dot every I, uh, who you know, prays regularly and reads their word regularly and serves the community and gives to the poor and all those things, you know, it's much harder to detect whether or not they're actually intimately walking with the living Christ. Uh, and, and I think that for me, ministry became a replacement of Jesus and inevitably it led to an emptiness. And so when Hattie said, Daddy, shouldn't read, I remember I angrily the next morning said, Lord, it's not fair. I'm being held to an un, a, a, a different standard. And it was in that moment Jesus said, yes, you are. <laughs> and your point is. <laughs> And I realized that I was like Jonah. And every time I've tried to get out of this stinking city, I get vomited back up on its shore. Uh, and I've been offered multiple jobs over the years, teaching positions at different. And for some reason, I've just not ever been able to do it. I can't seem to cut the umbilical cord. And this is when the Lord, it was about midway through the Psalm 119 study. God asked me probably on December 15th, when did you stop believing in the vision that I gave you? And I was like, oh man, that's convicting. And I just began to weep. And it just, I don't know, something happened. And I just said, Jesus, I just need to hunger and thirst. I need to remember what it's like to hunger and thirst for you again. And he just gave me a new love for the church and for the community. Um, a new call to even more radical confession of just like, you know, our leaders are falling all over the place in the church and the reason they're falling is because we have put an unhealthy um, uh, an unhealthy emphasis upon presenting to the world an ideal that we ourselves can't keep and it's, it's deeply problematic the church needs to function like an AA meeting if it's really going to be the church it needs to be a place where people are safe to confess their sins because our sins are forgiven but when we don't confess them it hides God from our experience but when we are open and, and broken and humble before the Lord, he'll empower that, he'll bless us. It actually becomes a place where he meets us really powerfully. And so I actually have been rehired as the lead pastor at Dwarf Hope. <laughs> and, uh, um, and being here today actually is kind of part of that commitment is, is to just like, this was, we're supposed to be a family of churches and I've had almost, other than Cameron's one of my dear friends, uh, and I love so many of you. There's been very little interaction between the churches. And so Cam and I are talking. We don't know what that means, but we want to we honor the, the original vision. So we're going to really be brainstorming. And I'm committed to being in faithfully in prayer for you guys and, and being a support to Cam and Susanna in any way that, they, uh, that would be helpful, um, as long as it's not a hindrance. Um, I still believe that... Uh, when we say family of churches, we don't mean parish. So I'm not interested in, in leading a church that I can't be at. Um, but I am interested in being a support to the leadership here. And, to the, and so we're just trying to figure out ways that we can partner um, more fully. Um, because we need each other. Uh, we really do. And so it's exciting. So today, it's so crazy that I'm being asked to speak on the Lord's Supper. Because yesterday, I just ended seven days, uh, a seven-day water-only fast and prayer for the prayer for this the city um and at 49 it's amazing i ended the week feeling spirit 
filled and svelte. Uh, <laughs> Darcy's like, you look good. I'm like, I know, and I feel very happy and peaceful. <laughs> um, but it wasn't a vanity project. It was actually this kind of, we're going through the Sermon on the Mount at Southeast right now, and I'd assigned Ian to teach on fasting, and I knew he had never fasted, and it was kind of my trick that I played on him. So I also know that Ian cannot turn down a challenge. And so I'm like, dude, I gave you fasting, and I know you've never fasted. And he goes, I know, I was kind of worried about that. And I'm like, I challenge you to a seven-day water-only fast. <laughs> and, and I'm like, and you can't break it till after you preach. Um, and he was like, of course, he was like immediately like, yes. Um, uh, but he only made it five days. And then I'm like, you failed the Lord. He's so disappointed in you. Um, and and which I'm actually glad that he didn't make it because the whole point of entering into divine practices is that flows out of grace. We're not earning anything with God by doing it. We're doing it because our hunger and thirst for him is, is so great that we just, we want to know, we want to actually ask the question, do I hunger for Jesus the way that I hunger for food? Uh, do I hunger for the kingdom of God? Do I pursue it? Um, do I pursue that kingdom and his righteousness the same way that I pursue the things of this world? Um, am I really a person who is controlled by a spirit of fear? Or am I like in 2 Timothy, do I remember that we have not been given a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control? And what a powerful thing to actually, a guy like me who is driven by the motto, more is more, which is why I don't drink, uh, is... is is reminded that even me and all my impulsiveness do have the power by the Spirit to say no to the flesh. Um, and it's not easy. You know, Saturday night, was I knew it was ending yesterday, I mean Friday night, and I went to Fred Meyer after I was done praying, totally Spirit-filled, and I just walked down aisles and I just looked at food and I just thought about what I was gonna eat when it was done. I stood in the chip aisle for like 15 minutes. I don't even eat chips. And I was like, man, this is going to be so rad. I was like a little kid at a toy store. I didn't break the fast, but I just sat and dreamt about it. <laughs> and I, I just, I'm just reminded, like, how much our appetites control us. Um, and, and I think that the Lord's Supper is one of the profound ways in which God reminds us that we have a spiritual appetite it's a part of the, the greater worship experience of us coming together that, that we are called to have an appetite for the things of Jesus and that Jesus really is the central. He is in many ways, in my view, he is the sacrament. And when we come to the table, um, we are being reminded that everything that needs to be done has already been done in Christ. And so I want to just talk us through communion because I think the journey that I just shared with you that that reawakening it was it really was a reawakening to a to a spiritual hunger that marked my early years with Christ but like so many things uh, those that sacred romance can dissipate and the familiar becomes mundane and we begin to question the necessity of things. Why, why do we need to... I've read the Bible so many times, why should I read it anymore? I, I, like, I, you know, I believe in Jesus, but why, why should I come to church? And, uh, you know, this, this is a, that's a huge part of the exodus from the church right now, uh, is that church is, no, is, is not necessary. The church has got... 
The church is filled with sinners. Uh, it's funny that people that leave the church because the church has hurt them never even take a moment to ask the question of how have they contributed to the hurt in the church because everybody will be the victim and the victimizer at some point in their life, often both at the same time, which is also good to be reminded that the whole purpose of Jesus' death is because he is the judge and the judge in our place and he died for the victim and the victimizer. We don't get a, we don't get a pick sides because we bring our own brokenness to the community and that contributes to the brokenness within the community and yet we walk away as if we never did anything wrong <laughs> um and and i think that this is why i, I get so frustrated with uh, with um demands for justice with when grace is absent from the conversation is that we want justice for injustice in the world but as long as it's not applied to us it's like we refuse grace to others while we abuse it in ourselves. And I think that the Lord's table is a place that is meant to bring us back to one of the key principles in Scripture. And that is the importance of remembrance. We often are people that forget to remember. <laughs> um, and, and, and one of the, the challenges we're faced with in the world that we live in right now is that, is that our, our world has been in a massive upheaval because we don't remember we don't know where we have come from we act like we're like this is like some new moment under the sun which scripture says there is nothing new under the sun that that the patterns of human history are repetition and it's built upon the violence of the human heart that is opposition against God under the domain of darkness and yet we turn it into these little petty arguments around what's the cause of the woes of society. The cause of the woes of society is you and I, the human heart. And that woe is colorblind. And it is politically ignorant. <laughs> and it's not driven by anything other than the fact that human beings, when left to their own devices, We'll take advantage of one another and hurt one another and this is why the universe as Rene Girard said swarms with scapegoats the scapegoat mechanism is always looking for the reason why I am hurting must be this person or this group's fault the Lord's table is meant to bring us back to the foot of the cross which has always been the foundation of door of hope and the foot of a, the foot of the cross is a place where Jesus the first words he uttered was what Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That the heart of God is a heart of forgiveness, which is good news. And the bad news is there's a lot that we need to be forgiven of and we're not even aware of. And so when I look at this powerful passage, when Jesus takes the bread, when he gives thanks and he, break, he, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples, and what did he say? He says, take this, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks he he gave it to them and they all drank from it and he said this is my my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many the other gospel he says this it is the my blood spilled for the forgiveness of the sins of many eat this and drink this in remembrance of me and and i i love this he says he goes on to say he goes truly i tell you i will not drink again from the fruit of the vine this is why I, I can't possibly be a teetotaler when Jesus says he's going to drink wine. I just think in heaven I'm going to have self-control. 
<laughs> because we'll be too busy being drunk on the presence of God in a way that we've never experienced before uh, to, to need something to escape the woes of life because the tears will have been wiped away and the, and the feast that, that awaits us in the kingdom that is coming in full, which is already now here in part, um, is going to be something that our minds can't... The best is yet to come, friends, is my point. And I love this, that Jesus says he's going to drink of it again. There's going to be a celebration. But right now, the cup, the wine, the bread, these are meant to drive us. He, he, he knows we're physical beings. He knows we're driven by our appetites. And so he uses the physical to point us back to the spiritual and supernatural reality that if anyone be in Christ, the old is past and the new has come. That we are new creation. I, I, I love this, um, th- this quote because I believe that the Lord's table is meant to bring us to remembrance of who we are in Jesus and to remind us uh, of, of it, it, it is not meant to merely just remind us of what Jesus did for us, but it's also meant to, to shake us out of the weakness of our desires. You guys ever read The Weight of Glory by C.S. Lewis? It's probably my favorite essay. It's actually a speech that he gave. But one of the things that I, I, lo- um, I love about, about The Weight of Glory is he talks about, he talks about desire. And, and he says this in, in The Weight of Glory. He says, indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the reward promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord, our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Isn't that so true? We are far too easily pleased. So the, the first thing I want to ask you about this powerful call for us to remember through the bread and the cup is I want to call you to the divine hunger. Uh, and I, I did have slides, and it's the, it's the second slide. Uh, the, divine, the divine hunger. In Matthew chapter 5 in the, in the Beatitudes, what does Jesus say? He says, blessed are those who what? Hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. When Jesus asks us to come to the table and, and, and to, to, to remember him, to, to eat of the bread and to drink of the cup, the act of actually eating and drinking as a means of, of, of bringing us to a place of remembering who we belong to, and what we are called to, and what he actually accomplished for us. Do you guys know what the definition of an actual sacrament is? Because baptism and communion are considered the two key sacraments, uh, the two commanded sacraments, actually. For the Catholic Church, salvation is actually dependent upon participation in what they call the Eucharist. We don't use that language. Uh, it, it, uh, 
that's not language we necessarily use in the Protestant church, but Eucharist, because their meaning of it is that every time you eat of the bread and drink of the cup, it, it is the literal body and blood of Christ. Um, and they're drawing from John chapter 6. They're drawing from, he doesn't say uh, this bread um, represents my body. He does say this bread is my body and this cup is my blood. Um, but he also said, hate your mother and father. Uh, and so does he mean that we should hate our mother and father? Um, I would argue that that would actually fly in the face of one of the key commandments, honor your mother and father. Hyperbolic language used as Hebrew idioms to explain preference or to give something, something uh, supreme value uh, to focus in on this. Is Jesus more important to you than even your own family is the point. And I believe that, it, that here with the bread and the cup, and I want to just be clear, this is a non-essential issue. And I, I'm a creedal Christian who, who sits uh, under, I sit comfortably at the table with everyone under the umbrella of orthodoxy, whether it's Eastern Orthodox, Catholic, or Protestant. Um, and although we do have distinctions and there are differences, there's a reason why I'm a Protestant and not a Catholic or Eastern Orthodox, but I still call them brothers and sisters in Christ if indeed the Spirit of Christ is in them. And, and so, but, the, but I do think it's actually important. I think it's an important issue, a very important one actually. Um, and to turn the cup and the bread into the actual uh, to the cup and the bread into the actual body and blood of Jesus, I think creates a gate to Jesus that dangerously front loads the gospel. Here, what, what I want you to see is that I think one of the key points of communion is to not just simply cause us to remember all that Jesus has done for us and who we are in Jesus, but also to force us to ask the question, what is it that supremely drives us? What is the central hunger of our lives? Look at this passage in Nehemiah 14. I, this, is, this is such a, a powerful statement. In their hunger, you gave them bread from heaven, manna, this kind of supernatural bread. They're remembering God's deliverance of the children of Israel out of slavery uh, as they move toward the promised land through the wilderness. And in the wilderness, he gave them manna from heaven. And in their thirst, you brought them water from the rock. You told them to go in and take possession of the land you had sworn with uplifted hands to give them. God has always been calling his people to be a part of his mission. <laughs> and he also, he also is the one who, becomes, who promises to provide for us all that is necessary to fulfill that mission. And I think that this is one of the ways the Lord's table is to remind us that everything that is necessary to live out the Christian life is found in the one who commanded us to remember. That Jesus, Jesus has promised that if he goes, that we're not to, to, to mourn because he will send to you another helper, the spirit of truth. And when the Spirit comes and we are told that He will bring to remembrance all that Jesus has said and he will, he will teach us and He will actually bring conviction to the world and He does that through His church. 
And so when I come to the table, I am confronted with the reality not only of who Jesus is, but who I am in Jesus. And that forces me to ask the question, what is it that I am giving my allegiance to in this world? And this is why I think it's appropriate to think of the communion table. It's not meant to be a place of, of, um, of bitterness and mourning. Um, I've often said, I use the language of Lewis, that it's a place of serious joy. <laughs> um, but I will say this, I, I'm, I'm shifting a little on that. Because sometimes when we come to the table and we remember Jesus, you can't draw near to Jesus without the light exposing what is dark inside you. And I have come to the table recently, and as I eat of the bread and drink of the cup, I remember how often this is not the thing that I hunger for. And, and so the, the first question I want to just ask you is, just the simple question is like, do you hunger for the things of God? Look what it says in Proverbs 16, 26. It's so interesting. This is a proverb about, about life, but let's apply this spiritually. The appetite of laborers works for them. Their hunger drives them on. <laughs> so apply that spiritually. It's pretty simple. Spiritual hunger <laughs> drives you towards spiritual things. <laughs> and, and I'm not talking about the separation of the physical and the spiritual. I'm talking about the spiritual. The, the mission, what is the central mission of the church? What's the purpose of your gathering here today? Is, is it not, the reason that the church gathered, I believe the reason that people have abandoned the church in this particular moment is not because they don't have a, a theology of suffering. I actually don't think that we need a theology of suffering. What we need is a theology of the cross, which helps us recognize that there is no way to truly understand why we suffer. What's important is that Jesus has done something about it, that he's entered into it, that he's made it his own. I don't have to escape suffering because I truly believe that Jesus has the final word on it. I don't have to try to explain why you guys just lost a loved one. I visited him in the hospital when he was going to lose his leg. And it's a horrific thing to lose a friend. I walked through, I told Cameron before service, I walked through that in the early days of Door of Hope. I, I did the memorial service of two men that died at 45, both of them from cancer, and both left small children. It would not be beneficial for me to say to either of their wives or their kids, um, this is why this happened. <laughs> That's what a foolish endeavor and what a hurtful thing. What we can actually say is, I don't know why this happened and I know it hurts terribly, but when I look to Jesus, I see someone who cares and I see someone who's willing to be with us in the midst of it. One of the key aspects of my book, um, Stumbling Toward Eternity, is that the freedom that Jesus offers us is not freedom from pain, it's the freedom from the need to be free from pain because we know he's victorious over it and that the best is yet to come. I think this should be driving us back to an eternal perspective. Do we actually long for Jesus' return? Do we think we're supposed to get the world ready for him to return? I mean, I'm pretty sure he said the world is not going to get better before he comes back. It's going to get worse. But for some reason, Christians have forgotten that. But I, I love this, the appetite of laborers works for them because their hunger drives them forward. And I think that that's the thing is, we, 
We're, 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 we're filling ourselves with so much of what the world has to offer that there is no space to be hungry for God. Isn't that true? I know it's true in my own life. You know, it's fascinating. Like, I have really come to love... I never watched TV before I had my anxiety season in the early days of Door of Hope. Um, and I remember during that season, I was so anxious and I discovered with my wife Friday Night Lights. And I was like, I don't even like football. And I was like, I just like, I think I want to be a football coach now. Uh, I was like, I watched that show. I think we binged it. And, like, and, it, and it was amazing because it was, it, it was this wonderful escape during the last two months of the most severe season of the anxiety. Um, and, and ever since then, television often connected for me with drink, like how I, I'm done thinking about ministry today. I'm going to go. And I could not watch TV this week while I was fasting. It actually overwhelmed me. It was like too stimulating. I didn't even really hardly listen to music. I just, it was like the first time in a long time where it's like I constantly wanted to go get, be alone and read my Bible. But mainly I was so busy. I just was with people, praying with people, thinking about, like the meals were easy to skip because we were replacing the meals. We met every day at 6 a.m. and 12 p.m. and 5 p.m. and prayed for an hour together. And I called the church to it last minute. I said, listen, the reason we're gonna, I'm just dropping this on you like a bomb right now is because if you have too much time to think about it, you won't do it. Because there's a million reasons why no one wants to starve themselves. Because um, <laughs> it's not comfortable. But all these people got excited and came every day. And it was such a powerful, it was like, it's amazing how much time we spend thinking about food. That is a really fascinating thing. And how many hours a day kind of spent around a table, which is a gift from God. Um, but to replace that with a hunger, a divine hunger, Lord, we want to see you move. We want to see your hand in this place. I believe that the Lord's table, one of the key aspects of the table is that it should create an ever-increasing hunger for him and the things of him. And here's, let me just finish saying why I believe the church has suffered so much um, since uh, COVID is because I believe one of the things that we lost sight of is we turned our Christianity into something about our individual um, enlightenment rather than the central call to come together as broken, sinful people where we lift up Jesus to a lost world and we are basically beggars telling other beggars where they can get some bread. But we forgot that we're beggars and we forgot to tell other people where they can get bread with us. And we made it about us. And we turn the enemy into those people outside there when we forget that the greatest work that the enemy does against the kingdom of God is actually through God's people. He, the greatest threat to the church always sits inside the church, not outside of the church. I fundamentally believe that in the core of my being. I've seen the enemy use me as a tool and I've seen him use a lot of God's people as tools over the years. Uh, and Satan doesn't play fair. Uh, and I think that this is, if we, if, if, if we want to know if we're hungry, hungry and thirsty for God's righteousness, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll know that we're being filled with Jesus when it produces in us a hunger to bring that grace to the lost around us and that we might be poured out. Because the responsibility of the church is not to function like, like spiritual dominators. We aren't called to be wolves. We are called to be a picture of the sacrificial lamb, which means our lives are meant to be laid down. 
we don't get to have enemies, essentially, because our enemies are the very people we're called to love. We exist for the good of those outside these walls. Do you take that mission seriously? There's a lot of chairs that could be filled with people in this neighborhood. You know, they, they did a survey. 80% of the survey of, of, I think it was up to 20,000 people, non-Christians, were asked, would they go to church if someone asked them? And 80% of them said they would absolutely go if someone asked them. They asked the same amount of Christians if they ever invited people to church. You know what the percentage was that invited people to church? 3%. 3%. And pastors love to further paint the narrative that the world isn't interested in the gospel. Oh my gosh, what the hell's wrong with us? This is the last thing we should ever be telling anyone. We, we, we should be inspiring people to go out and your, your neighbor, your coworker, your friends, your, the people you go to school with, these are all people that are, that are lost and Jesus is in the business of pursuing. And if, and if you aren't going to be a conduit by which he pursues others, then he will find someone else to do it. <laughs> I always say, I can't stop Jesus from fulfilling his mission, but I can sure make a mess of him fulfilling his mission in my life. I actually just shared a message on holiness. I'm like, we think we get holiness all wrong. I'm like, listen, Jesus, I would say that the drunk who actually shares Jesus with lost people is closer to the definition of holiness than the person that never swears, doesn't sleep around, prays regularly, gives regularly, goes to church, participates in every, everything, but never tells anyone about Jesus. I'm like, I think they have far more to answer for than the alcoholic. It's like the... Like, you're safer being the drunk priest of the power and the glory of Graham Greene, if you ever read that book. The whiskey priest, as he's called. Uh, the divine hunger brings us back to what we're called to, is my point. Uh, finally, I just want you guys to think about this. I like to refer to Jesus himself as the sacrament. And I'm going to give you my personal position on this. There are many views under the umbrella of orthodoxy. And I'm not here to challenge, um, well, I am here to challenge, but I'm not, I'm not here to undermine or, or take some kind of cheap shot at my Catholic brothers and sisters because I believe Protestants, Catholics, and Orthodox, um, I, my personal view is that when we turn the sacrament itself into a carrier of grace, we create walls by which some people are not allowed in and and I'm gonna explain that for the Catholic you are not necessarily saved actually I actually looked it up in their own documents baptism is necessary for salvation that's why they do infant baptism um, that but the the Eucharist holds uh, and it varies a little bit but it holds pretty much the same position that's why for a Catholic when they're dying what what's the, the necessity is that the priest comes and applies the Eucharist gives them last rites uh, Protestants fundamentally said that is that can't be that threatens the gospel of grace threatens it but Protestants even my hero the greatest punk rock Christian that's ever lived Martin Luther uh, still fundamentally believe that that the because luther just wanted the catholic he he was a catholic a medieval catholic he still want he, he wanted to be catholic he just he wanted the catholic church to reform and it didn't so he left <laughs> um but he still believed that there was something supernatural 
about eating of the bread and drinking of the cup that became a unique dispenser of grace. And Calvin believed that. And most Protestant churches actually see that that's, that's the other side of the definition of sacrament. It's not just a symbol of the actual presence of the living God. It is also a vehicle by which God brings his grace into their lives. I agree with that only in part. And I'm going to just show you why. Because I agree with Karl Barth. Jesus is actually the only sacrament. <laughs> John 6, 35. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. John 6, 53-54. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise them up at the last day for my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. This is why this, this passage is actually one of the key passages uh, that the Catholic faith uses uh, to defend the, the position of what's called transubstantiation, that the bread and the cup actually become the literal body and blood of Christ when the priest applies it to the member of the church. The problem with that is that I don't think you have to turn that into a literal statement. I agree to, a, to an extent that everything we do in the name of Jesus, when we obey his commands, it becomes a vehicle of grace. But that actually expands far beyond just coming to the Lord's table. That also includes fulfilling the Great Commission. That also includes praying when people pray. Uh, when two or more gather in my name in prayer, I am what? They're in the midst of them. Grace, I was telling Cam right before service, is never applied to anything in the New Testament except Jesus. He is, because grace is what? How do you define grace? Paul Zoll de defines it as the one-way love of God. It's a love that comes to the unlovable. In other words, you cannot separate the gift of God from the giver himself. The gift is Jesus himself. John, John 6.35 and John 6.53-54 is telling us, Jesus is saying, listen, what does he say to the woman at the well? If you knew who asked, you would know that he would give you living water. And when you drink from this well, you'll never thirst again. And he's not saying that you just have to drink once. He's just saying, I'm the well. And as long as you keep abiding in me and drinking from me, you're not going to be thirsty. And he says, I'm the bread of life. And he says, as long as you, as as you keep feeding on me and you're hungry for me, you're going to be satisfied. And one of the signs of Christian satisfaction, actually, is it's the paradox, actually, of Christian satisfaction. It's to eat of the bread and to drink of the cup and find satisfaction and yet long for more. Isn't that a powerful picture? As a deer panteth after the brook, so my soul thirsts for you. It's what Tozer said, the soul's paradox of love is to have found God and still pursue Him. It's, I'm satisfied as I continue to hunger. I'm, I'm, my thirst is quenched as I continue to thirst. And, and, and this, which means that there's movement to the Christian life. And which tells us we also have to keep drinking and we have to keep eating, which is why we need to keep coming to the table because we have to keep remembering because we're too quick to forget. John 1, 16 and 17 shows us what the vehicle of grace is. And you can eat of the bread and you can drink of the cup and experience no grace, I promise you. <laughs> because the mind and the heart is not fixed upon the actual sacrament, which is Jesus himself. 
Out of his fullness, we have received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Let me just say grace and truth are not two sides of, of, a, of a balancing act. Grace always comes before truth. Because no one can know God unless he first drew him. That's the gracious movement of God. I think that this is a, deep, um, a, a deeply misused text that actually gives Christians an excuse for actually being harsh with one another. Um, grace actually is the, is the bridge that allows us to bring truth into another life. Um, and so I think that it's really important. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is Himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father. He has made Him known. Grace, again and again, Paul uses that language. The grace that we have received in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the bread. Jesus is the living water, but Jesus is also the vine, which means he's the source of spiritual wine, which is why we're told, to, don't be drunk, which is dissipation. Don't be filled with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And I think that when we come to the table and understand we are coming to meet with, a, with the very one who lives within us, we're coming to, we're coming to remember, we come to church to lift up the God that we're already meeting with. This is why Tozer said, if, if, if we don't just come to church to worship, we need to be a worshiping people. And church is just an extension of what should already be happening. That worship is the celebration of the fact that God is in this place and we often don't know it. And I think that the purpose of us coming to the communion table is to be reminded that he's, he's never left us. He, he, the table, when I, when I get frustrated, I, I, I actually have a friend who's very big on, uh, on, on what they call fencing the table. Have you guys ever heard of that term? Um, fencing the table means you cannot, in many Protestant churches, um, Door of Hope has often been accused, uh, not often, more than often, is viewed by many of my friends that come from a more reformed tradition that we, are, we, we, don't, we don't take communion seriously because we allow anyone to come forward and take it. We don't fence the table. And so in, in many Protestant traditions, you are not allowed. They may not say that salvation is, is dependent upon taking communion, but they will say that to participate in their community requires membership and if you're not a member you can't you can't take communion they even go further and say if you're not a member you can't get baptized so i actually one of the biggest i think cameron you might have been with me when we when we went to an event um it was the staff went to it and this was presented the baptism itself um, we don't let people get baptized unless they've gone through the membership class because we don't want to be baptizing unregenerate people. Well, first of all, let me just say, it is arrogant for anyone to think they know who's in and who's out. <laughs> um, secondly, I'm like, I just raised my hand. I'm like, I, I'm sorry, what about, what about Pentecost? <laughs> I remember for he goes, well, there is that. <laughs> he goes, but we feel that this is the safest way to, I'm like, I'm like, I'm sorry. From my vantage point, you're front-loading the gospel. 
This is why when we do baptisms, we'll be like, if there's anyone out here, I don't even care if you just walked over to see what's happening. And you know, I'm like, what do we, we think what people need to have a working understanding of atonement to be saved? Did the thief on the cross of Jesus go, let me explain to you what atonement is, what I'm doing here. Um, and then we'll talk about, as we're both being tortured to death, whether or not, you know, if you don't get this though, I'm sorry, buddy. No, all he says is, Jesus, remember me. <laughs> he, he acknowledges his own sin. He says, listen, we're guilty. We deserve what we're getting, but this man's innocent, repentance. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He doesn't say Jesus is Lord. He doesn't refer to him as, as Lord. He doesn't refer, but Lord is inferred by the fact that he says, when you come into your kingdom. <laughs> we don't even know if the thief was actually asking to have another life. He was just asking to be remembered by the one who he saw actually deserved to escape death. Um, and Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. I believe Jesus actually brought him beyond what he was even asking. Gave him something beyond what he was even asking. My father, who I stared into his eyes when he died last February. I got a call on Wednesday night at 6 p.m. I, 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 I got on a, on a plane in Seattle at 9.30 that night, which tells you how fast I drove. Um, and I was in Anchorage at 5 a.m. and then on another flight um, at 6 a.m. Uh, to Kenai and by 7 a.m. I was standing by my dad's side. And my dad had a lifelong alcohol and drug addiction. Door of Hope was actually the catalyst for me re-entering re into my relationship with my dad. When I first started speaking with him as his health began to deteriorate due to his lifelong addiction and isolation. He lived in a cabin by himself. His partner died back in 2015. The last three years of life, my dad drank literally a liter of vodka every day and smoked two packs of cigarettes and he couldn't walk and he would often sit in his own filth and mess because he couldn't even get to the bathroom for a month at a time until he would end up back in ICU with sores all over his body. I mean, it was the most horrific. He lived worse than what I see m many, many people on the streets living like because he had no way to care for himself and, and he drank and he smoked because he was terrified of dying and it helped him escape his fear but it actually was helping fulfill the thing he was afraid of. But in 2020, not long after, I actually, it was, it was a week after you guys were planted. 2020, I got a call from a guy named Frank who is, who's the chaplain at the church my dad had been going to. And I couldn't figure out, I'd been with my dad and my dad seemed to have a strange kind of working vocabulary all of a sudden around the gospel and I, I didn't know what was, I thought it was like supernaturally imparted but my dad's like I'm not I can't I will not surrender and I'm like dad you don't have anything to surrender like your body's a mess and he's like I can still kick your I'm like no you can't like not even in your wildest dreams you can't even walk like I'll just stand over here and you can't do anything um and and he was he he he, he understood the gospel he believed in it but he wouldn't surrender to it. He actually understood what was being asked of him better than many people do. And Frank calls me and says, I'm your dad's chaplain. I've been sharing Jesus with him for years. And he, uh, he just told me today that he prayed to receive Christ. I said, oh yeah? Like, that's insane. What, what he's, and he goes, but Josh, I think you need to call him. And that's why I'm calling you because he's not sure. He said to me, I'm not sure if it's stuck. 
And uh, so I called them and I said, Dad, I, you know, I heard, I heard what happened. I said, it's amazing. And he goes, yeah, but I'm not sure if it's stuck. <laughs> and I said, why, Dad? Because you're worried about, like, you're not contributing anything or because you're not over your alcoholism. I'm like, if you stop drinking right now, it'll kill you. You think Jesus is worried about your smoking and alcohol? I'm like, you're past that. You're, you're not even usable um, at this point, except in the sermons that I share about you. Um, and uh, and he, he literally goes, F you. <laughs> and I said, I'm like, Dad, my point is this, is Jesus loves you. And, and, and his sacrifice on your behalf is not based upon what you do for him. And honestly, if you, if you believe that, you understand grace better than most people in the church. And he said, and he said, he said, I do believe that, son. And I said, his grace is stickier than your doubt. And he, he goes, is it all right, Josh, if I call him the big fella? And I said, as long as you start with Jesus. When I watched my dad die, I saw a man who was able to contribute nothing. And I thought to myself, I don't, that man never took the Lord's table ever. But I know with all of my heart that he participated. He is participating right now in a new life because he ate of the body and drank of the blood when he said yes to God's yes declared over him in Jesus. And because of that, we have the gift of being able to walk up to the table. And we don't fence the table. We don't get to say who's in and who's out. Because there's a lot of people like Alexander White out there, and we all know him. And, and if the church is a place that basically puts up a wall that says you can't participate with us until you, until you play by our rules, then we have lost our sense of what it means to be a witness to a lost and broken world. The statements and, and claims of Jesus, yes, are exclusive. He is the way, the only way, the truth, and the life. But it is an inclusive invitation. And so I believe that we should represent that well. And so I, I stand firmly in the conviction that we're doing it right. And so I just close with this. What are you about Paul's warning to not take the Lord's Supper? Some of you are eating and drinking judgment upon yourselves. First of all, for those that actually say, listen, this is a warning. This is why we shouldn't, we need to know that they're saved because a non-believer would, would be drinking and eating judgment upon themselves. What are you talking about? A non-believer are dead in their sins. I, where's the, what's there to judge? That's not the, the warning. The warning is actually to Christians who are forgetting to remember what it is that they're doing. The warning is for us every day against us forgetting that the only safe place for us in existence is abiding in Christ. And so I close with this question. Do you know him? It's the only question that ultimately matters. Do you know him? And if you know him, do you, do you love him? And we love him only because he first loved us. And we're not going to actually love him if we don't believe in the core of our being that we are loved. And his grace is, is love without contingency. He loves you not because you're lovable, but he loves you because it's his nature to do so. There are only two kinds of people in the world. Evil people that say yes to God's yes over them in Jesus and evil people that say no. And that should put us in a very, very humble position as we come to the table and we remember that every time we eat of that bread and we drink of that cup, we are reminded that everything that needs to be done has already been done in Jesus.
Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray.